Good morning. My name is Brad Jackson, uh, lead pastor here, and it's good to see you all. I want to start off by uh, just simply saying you're welcome. Um, we went to Dallas, Texas for the week, and we dragged the good weather back from Dallas to you. And for that, you're welcome. Um, <laughs> it is so good to be back, um, and, and I do mean that. And uh, it is good to see you all here this morning. We are in a series during Lent. Lent is that time of the year where we walk towards Holy Week, where we walk towards Palm Sunday and Good Friday and Easter, where we celebrate the risen Savior. But in the process, in the 40 days leading in, we prepare. We think about what do our lives look like? How are we connecting to God? And to do that, we're doing a series in the Psalms. We're taking the Psalms that literally this weekend, churches all around the world are looking at these Psalms. They're out of something called the lectionary. It's a way that churches read scripture in corporate worship. And so we're taking Psalms that, and I I just love this, that other Christians at this very moment are reading, are talking through. And I think there's something beautiful about the unity of the body of Christ to that. And as we look at the Psalms, I've been trying to help us understand uh, how we read Psalms. It's a little different than how we read the Gospels. It's very different than how we read uh, the epistles by Paul where he wrote letters and it's so easy to logically break them down. The Psalms, another way to look at it could be like thinking about that favorite playlist, favorite CD, maybe you're going really old school, back to tapes. And if you got a track player, I have no idea what to do with you. But it's like that favorite playlist that when things are bad, when life is not in the place you want it to be, you play it, right? For me, it's this CD right now by a group called All Sons and Daughters. And when I'm in that little bit of a funk, things are, I put it in and it speaks to me in a way that I need. But it's very different than if I just had a conversation with you or I sat down and read uh, one of the Gospels. It speaks in poetry. It speaks in song. It speaks truth, but in a different sort of way. And so we are in the Psalms, and each week we're trying to wrap our minds around one word, just walking out with one word. So the first week we talked about confession, and then we looked at the word help, and last week Chris did a great job of talking about worship. And this morning... I want us to look at this idea of mercy. What does it mean in the season of Lent as we walk towards the cross, as we walk towards the resurrection, to think about the idea of mercy? Before we jump into Psalm 142, let me pray. Father, I pray that you would take your word. And God, that it would speak into our lives exactly what you need to speak. And as we sit in these chairs, we have a whole story, a whole narrative that we've brought into this room. Some of it good, some of it is, is joyous, but some of it is pain and some of it is sin. And God, I pray with open hands that we would simply put that before you and that you would speak your goodness, your love, your grace into that. We pray this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Spirit and all God's people said, Amen. Psalm 142, if you have your Bibles, I'm going to be reading out of the New Living Translation. If you don't, it will be on the screen as well. But Psalm 142, verse 1 says this, I cry out, and this is a Psalm of David, I cry out to the Lord, I plead for the Lord's mercy. And time and time again, one of the things that we try and wrap our minds around is what's the context, what's the story here so that we can faithfully understand what's going on. And many of your Bibles, right below Psalm 142, it says this, 
a psalm of David regarding his experience in the cave. And most commentators agree that this psalm actually has a story behind it. Some of the psalms, we don't know what the story behind it is. But this psalm has a story behind it. So if you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Samuel 24. 1 Samuel 24, there's a really interesting story behind it. But it helps us understand why David is going into this lament. He is bearing his soul, sharing what he's going through. And here's the story behind the psalm. 1 Samuel 24, verse 1 says this. We're not going to read the whole chapter. I'll jump around a little bit. After Saul returned from fighting the Philistines, he was told that David, and remember, in the Old Testament, they had these kings through part of it. And Saul was the first king, and the king that would follow him wasn't one of his kids, which is a huge deal, and it's going to be David. So David has been anointed king. Saul's pretty upset about it, that it's not going to be one of his kids, and he is chasing David around, trying to kill him. That's the backstory. So he returns home from fighting the Philistines. He was told that David had gone in the wilderness of En Gedi. So Saul chose 3,000 elite troops from all of Israel and went to search for David and his men near the rocks of the wild ghost. So David has a few hundred men. Saul decides, I've got to kill this guy. Gets 3,000 of the best soldiers together and says, we're going on this mission. We're going to kill him. The kingdom will go to one of my heirs. Verse 3. At the place where the road passes... Uh, some sheepfold, Saul went into a cave to relieve himself. Yes, the Bible talks about people going to the bathroom. But as it happened, and this is, it's, just, it's an interesting story, but as it happened, David and his men were hiding further back in the cave. So it must be a fairly large cave because David had a few hundred of his own soldiers that were around him. And here's what his people say. Now's your opportunity David's men whispered to him. And I mean, I don't know about you. When I read scripture, you try and imagine it. This is one that I'm leaving a little alone on imagining it too much. But his guys are like, they they see Saul going to the bathroom and David, they're whispering to him. And then they say, today the Lord is telling you. Let me just say this. Anytime a friend says that the Lord is telling you something, always be aware. Always put it through a really good grid. I'm not saying that we don't get a word from the Lord, but it's through, put it through a good grid of, is this, is, re- is this really a word from the Lord? This one probably was not. I, I will certainly put your enemy in your power to do with as you will. So basically, go and kill him. So David crept forward and cut off a piece of the hem of Saul's robe. Guy's going to the bathroom. David somehow sneaks in, cuts off a little hem from the robe, sneaks back, doesn't actually kill him. And David starts to wrestle with this guilt of what he did. And Saul leaves the cave. And here it is. Verse 8. After Saul left the cave and gone in his way, David came out and shouted after him, My Lord, the king. And when Saul turned around, David bowed low before him. Then he shouted to Saul, why do you listen to the people who say I'm trying to harm you this very day? You can see with your own eyes it isn't true. Listen, for the Lord placed you at my mercy back in the cave. It's interesting that that word is used. And there is this interaction, Paul, uh, Saul and David have this whole interaction back and forth. And at the end of it, Saul knows that David is eventually going to be king. And he says, swear to me an oath. That when I die, you will not harm any of my family. David swears the oath back. And here's how the chapter ends. Because we've got to get our minds. Where is David when he's writing Psalm 142? And here's what it says. So David promised this to Saul with an oath. And here it is. Then Saul went home. David and his men went back to their stronghold. 
And stronghold sounds impressive. It sounds like maybe it's the beach house, lake house, or something. Stronghold simply means they went back to hiding out. They may have had a good interaction, but there was not this sense that they were actually safe. And remember, David had been promised that he would be king. And now Saul is chasing him to kill him. And as we've said many a times, a dead king is not that good of a king. Reminds us of Jesus Christ. Think about this. David's best friend is a guy named Jonathan, who is Saul's son. So his best friend's dad is chasing him with 3,000 people trying to kill him. How was your week? It's not a good place to be. David's in this tough situation and he's crying out for mercy. He's simply saying, I'm at the end of my rope and I simply want your mercy, your presence for you to do something, God. And in Psalm 142, what we see throughout the whole of the psalm is this ongoing tension between David David sharing the anguish of his soul, getting really honest with what's going on. And this is good for us. Because sometimes in church we come looking really good and we, we on the outside things seem great. And on the inside we're pretty messed up. There's a lot of pain going on. And David lives in the tension of the anguish of the soul, being honest about what's going on, sharing it with God, but trying, trying, trying to depend on Yahweh. And maybe this God is actually hearing him. Let's keep reading verses 2 through 6. So as I pour out my complaints before him, I tell him all my troubles when I am overwhelmed. And that word literally means admitting his weakness. When I'm at the point where there's nothing more that I can do than just say I'm admitting I can't do anything, you alone know the way I should turn. Wherever I go, my enemies have set traps for me. I look for someone to come and help me, but no one gives me a passing thought. Remember, this is poetry. So it's like, David, you're surrounded by hundreds of people, and yet you're making it sound as though no one cares about you. And what he's doing is he's just sharing what's in here. It's coming out, and he's saying, my feeling right now, I may be surrounded by people, but my feeling is I could not be more alone. And so I cry out to you, God, No one will help me. No one cares a bit about what happens to me. And I pray to you, O Lord. I say, you are my place of refuge. You are all I really want in life. Hear my cry, for I am very low. Rescue me from my persecutors, for they are too strong for me. And in poetry, David says, I could not feel more alone. I may have people on every side of me. But this thing I'm going through is weighing so heavy and I just feel like no one cares. I'm alone and so I cry out to you, God. And he ends the psalm with this, verse 7. Bring me out of prison so I can thank you. And it's this metaphor of prison, like I, I, I'm hostage. Bring me out of that. So I can thank you. And then here's the interesting part. The godly will crowd around me for you are good to me. David shares his whole story, talks about what's going on. But at the end of the day, here is something that's so important for us to understand. When we've shared our story and we've talked about our journey with God and we share that with others, the result should always be this corporate idea of saying thank you, this corporate worship that Chris talked about last week. 
when we hear God at work, when we hear God redeeming, when we hear God giving mercy, as God's people, we should say, thank you, God, right? It's the posture that we have when we see God at work. So the question, as we read down through Psalm 142, and we wrestle with this idea of mercy and crying out to God, before we come back to verse 1, what I want to do is ask one question. Who is God? When you're reading scripture, one of the most important things you can do, no matter what the passage is, is say, who is God in this passage? What do we learn about God from this passage? And it's interesting that Davis gives us some very clear understanding about who God is. Three things, and they'll be up on the screen here. In that middle section where he's pouring out his soul, he says three very important truths about God. One is this. Verse three says, you know my way. Not just God cognitively knows who David is, but God actually cares and maybe even desires to help David out. David, in the midst of feeling all alone, the reason he can cry out for mercy, and the reason he can plead for mercy is that he believes that God actually knows his way, that there is a divine being, a God, who cares about him. Next thing, verse 5. David says this about God. You're my refuge. That in the midst of being pursued by 3,000 people trying to kill him, and he doesn't know if they're going to work, they, they might actually kill him. He doesn't know. In the midst of that, he says this about God. I know God, no, no matter what happens, you are my refuge. Psalms 46 verse 1 puts it this way. God is our refuge and strength, always ready to help in times of trouble. And then the third thing in our understanding of God that I think is important before we wrestle with applying verse 1 is this. He says, you are all I want. Some of your translations say, you are my portion. And that word for portion goes back to the promise that had been given to all the tribes of Israel that one day they would have land. In that time, the most important things were having land and having kids. If you had your own land and you had heirs, you had kids, you were successful. And David takes this word and turns it into who God is in dependence on God. You see, there was a group, one of the groups in Israel called the, the Levites. And the Levites weren't going to get a piece of land, but yet they saw God. They used that same word portion in Numbers, they use that same word to describe how they depended on God, that they saw the Lord, that they saw Yahweh as their portion. They didn't need the land. It was they fully believed that if they depended on God, that this God is the one who actually relates to them and gives hope and whatever else you want to put in there. That their portion was God. It wasn't things, it wasn't stuff, it wasn't money. It wasn't the right relationship. It was God. So with that in mind, we come back to verse 1. The first part of verse 1 says, I cry out to the Lord. What does it mean to be people who would actually cry out to the Lord? The cry out, uh, probably for many of us, brings us into that idea of prayer. 
What does it mean to believe and approach God in prayer? For some of us, we have this understanding of prayer that it's almost like a genie in a bottle. If I go to God, it's almost like rubbing the side of the genie in a bottle. I ask for what I want, and if I ask for what I want, then I get it, right? It doesn't always work. Or, for some of us here this morning, when we think about talking to God, and we think about crying out, and we think about prayer... We have this imagery of the old man in the sky or God is almost like the Darth Vader, low, serious voice. And we feel like, how do I talk to that God? But for a lot of us, when we think about prayer, it's almost like making a 911 call. We rarely do it and we only do it when we're in serious trouble. And we have that same approach to prayer. That we go to God when things are at the worst possible moment. And I think the point of verse 1 is, please understand this. There's so many questions around prayer and evil and all that. I I don't think we, we always get those solved in Scripture. What we get, please hear this, we get is a God who wants to talk with us. I don't know about you, but if at the end of the day, the only thing that prayer does is connects me to God, that is fabulous. On the way home from Dallas, we drove down in the Yaris, and we still like our kids somehow. Um, But on the way back, I heard this uh, radio talking about a a study that had been done this last year about why people go to church, you know, and some people go to hear a message, some people go because they grew up and it's the thing you do, and some people go for the music, blah, blah, blah. Almost 50% of people go to church for the simple yet profound reason to connect with God. I think we are hardwired into our very core reality that we want to believe and connect with God. And when David says, I cry out in this moment of feeling all alone, even surrounded by people, and you know and get that, he believes that God will actually hear him. Even when he feels alone, when people don't get it. I read this week an article about a Christian author and blogger, and he was sharing his story, which had uh, abuse as an early kid and kept that quiet for so long. And it, it made me think about this idea that many, many in this room, not all, but many of you in this room, your reality is you spend your life with people but yet there's pain in you that makes you feel all alone. And my belief is there is a living God who wants you to cry out to him and will actually hear you. And that leads us to the second half of verse one, which says, I plead for the Lord's mercy. I plead for the Lord's mercy. I cry out to the Lord. I plead for mercy. We've probably all been there at different times. I remember a number of years ago, I, I rarely, rarely cry. I, the last time I cried, a couple of weeks ago, I decided on my day off it would be a good idea to watch Marley and Me. Marley and Me, it's not a comedy. It's not a comedy. Um, but the last time before that that I cried was a number of years ago. And uh, it was in this moment where I just had a couple of relational things going on where I'd really felt hurt by people. They were pretty intense. And I remember vividly driving down the road 
and I had to pull over to the side of the road alone in the car and had one of those, those moments, tears streaming down my face, where all I could do was this. Cry out to God. Plead for God's mercy. Ask for the presence of God. And I vividly, and I believe this with the core of my reality, I believe that, that is so true about how God wants to interact with us that when you cry out for mercy, there's a God who hears and moves towards you. That mercy is that kindness. It's that forgiveness. It's that benevolence from God. A.W. Pink defines it this way. He says, mercy is the ready inclination of God to relieve the misery of fallen creatures. Famous old preacher. And sometimes we think of mercy connected to our sin, and that's true. But that's not what Psalm 142 is about. Psalm 142 is about when you've been hurt by somebody else. What does it look like to cry out for mercy? And the thing I love about this simple definition is this ready inclination of God. Like that's how God works. That's how God moves. A little over a year ago, I was here on a candidating weekend. And I remember preaching Luke 15, the prodigal son. And it's this amazing story that is not so much about the prodigal son, but it's about the loving father. And in that story, we get at the heart of love, but we also get at the heart of mercy that God works by running towards his children. There's this almost gratuitous mercy that's shown towards someone who didn't deserve it. That's who God is. Ephesians 2 tells us that God is rich in mercy. Isn't that good language? There's a God who's rich in mercy. And here's the reality. Some of you here this morning, you have brought in pain. You've brought in stuff that is inside of you. And you're in a room with 400 people and you could not feel more alone, right? And what God says, and what I invite you to, is to cry out for the mercy of God. The God who will hear you, who wants to talk with you, and who wants to be there in that pain. I don't know all the answers about how things will end up. I, I don't get that. But I know there's a living God revealed in the person of Jesus Christ who wants to be with you in whatever it is. Then for a lot of us, on the other side of it, we read Psalm 142 and we're sitting there thinking, my week went pretty good, Brad. <laughs> I'm in a room of 400 people and I feel like I'm having fun with 400 people. I want to invite you to cry out for mercy for those who cannot cry out for mercy themselves. My mentor Amazing, amazing man. At, at age 48, 23 years at the same church, he told his board, he said, I, you have two years and I retire. Senior pastors tend to stay too long, so he said, at age 50, I'm done. And at age 50, he then went and started raising support to be a missionary. And what he does is he goes to the hardest places in the world where people are often persecuted for being a Christian, where pastors can't get out and get training, and he goes and he trains them and shows them love. What if this next week, those of you whose life is going well, and for that, awesome. 
But what if you spent time praying for people who are persecuted, praying for people who may literally be worshiping in the back of a cave? Praying for someone in this room who you know is going through a really painful situation and it's not on their own volition, it's something that's happened to them and they just need you to cry out for God's mercy on them. That's what a community does, right? That's what a community of faith does together. Is for those in that situation, we say we believe in a living God who wants to hear you as you cry out for mercy. And for the rest of us, we say we're crying out for you. And when we think about the church universal, we say we are crying out for anyone that needs mercy. Father, I pray. I pray that we would get not just in our heads, not just up here, but in the depth of our heart, in the core of our being, that we would get who you are, how you act, how you want to move towards us, God. And Lord, for some, that is the invitation to just simply cry out, to pull to the side of the road, to let the tears flow and to scream, God, where are you? I need you. I want you at this moment. I pray that you would free them to be there. And God, for many of us, I pray that you would remind us and allow us to cry out for those who need mercy, for those who need the God who is ready to act, to move towards broken people and broken situations. Praise the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Spirit. Amen.